Good. If you've got your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're finish up this chapter that we've been in together for the last month or so, really. While you're turning over there, I want to give you just a little synopsis of an important event in the life of our church that's going down beginning tomorrow. We have our second uh, international mission trip of the summer that's taking flight tomorrow around noon. I'll be on that trip as well as Jared Vaughn and Julie Hunt. And I just want to give you a sense of what we're going for so that you can be praying for it and that you can be uh, looking when we get back for ways that you might be able to connect with opportunities that surface while we're on the trip. The trip is going to be about a nine-day trip. And the idea is to connect with a family that we've known for years, that is connected to the church that planted us here and that's now connected through friendships to, to our church, a family called the Snaders, Brent and Melinda Snader. We're going over there to see what they're doing as clearly as we can so that we can come back and try to connect resources that we have with needs that they have. Brent's work is medical primarily. He works at a hospital and and, and sets up clinics in these remote villages in the, the mountains of northern India. And one of the, we are, we're a small church, but one of the things we have a surplus of is medical experience and training. So we think that there's a natural partnership here, that we can mobilize those of you who have training and are interested in using it for the kingdom in, in places where Jesus has never been named. We want to we send you there and, and give you short-term opportunities, and we're going to scope it all out this week. Melinda has, has a very vibrant, thriving work of her own, among, primarily among those children with special needs. And so we're going, Julie primarily is going to try to figure out what it is that she's doing so that we can connect those of you who have training in um, any sorts of special needs, but especially speech pathology or audiology or uh, occupational therapy, things like that, that we could send you over to help participate in, in clinics that she's putting on. And then finally, the final leg of the trip is uh, an ongoing partnership that we have with an, a group of Indian church planters that the Snaders are attached to as partners. This group of, of Indian pastors goes up on on trips into these mountains and just goes door to door sharing the gospel with people who just haven't even heard of Jesus before. And as there is a response, they, they, send, um, they send people back to, to follow up with them, begin discipling them, and then eventually, in many places, we've seen churches planted in these villages. So what we're seeing is, is many churches that, that are planted now in places where four years ago no one had even heard about Jesus. It's incredible. One of the ways that we partner with them along with Grace Community Church is to offer training for these pastors because many of them were not even believers just a few years ago. They have no formal training at all, and, and the Bible is still very new to them. So part of this trip will be some training that I'll be able to do for, for this group of Indian pastors. That'll be on Wednesday and Thursday this week. So that's what's happening. Uh, I pl- we, we covet your prayers. We're going to spend some time praying later in the service over the trip. But I really want you to be thinking about what you can do when we get back how you might be able to plug into this strategic partnership. It's a beautiful thing already, and the future is bright, and we want to we help out in any way we possibly can. That's what's going on this week. Now, to the text. What you probably know if you've been with us for, for even just a few weeks is that most of what we've been saying in this letter, most of what we've been uncovering in our study of it, has to do with something that happened in the past. In fact, the, the, the reality of it in the past is, has been the whole point. That Jesus died, 
at one time in history, and he never has to die again, because unlike the sacrifices in the Old Testament that had to be made every year, Jesus' sacrifice was so perfect, it is one and done, never to be repeated. The letter is about the past. And yet here, at the very end of a chapter given completely to teasing out the implications of Jesus and what he did in the past, we have a brief turn to the future. It only lasts a couple verses, and then it goes away. But in these two verses, we see the precious, life-shaping, encouraging implications for the future of what Jesus has accomplished in the past. That's where we want to plant this morning. I have been a future-oriented guy pretty much my whole life. I was one of those weird kids who was just always planning for the future. Even by the time I was probably 10, maybe, I was saving my $3 a month allowance every month, saving it, socking it away in a bank account. Anytime I'd get money for you know, Christmas or birthday or whatever, sock it away. The $10 I got for the two-day job that it was to cut my two-acre yard with a push mower as a 10-year-old, socked it away. Picked my career pretty much as a young high school student. Decided, I think I want to be a pastor. I'd seen my dad doing it. I, lo- I, I saw how rewarding it was and how, how wonderful it was to be able to spend your time doing something that you love, to spend your time studying the Bible and meeting with people. So I started preparing for that by the time I was probably 15 years old. I was working an angle on my now wife by the time I was 14 or 15 years old. (laughs) By the time I got to graduate school, I was one of those guys who bought into the myth that every research paper you write can make it into your dissertation as a chapter. That never happens. Don't believe that. But I was shooting at that and failing every time I wrote a paper. I know I'm not alone in here. You guys are a room full of type A people who are future-oriented. I know that about a lot of you, and I'm sure it's true about even, even those of you I don't know. We sock away retirement accounts. We think about, are we going to have enough money to make our kids' college a reality? We wonder about what we'll be able to do with our retirement and how much we need to save in order to make that happen. We wonder about our kids and what's going to happen with them. We're looking for tenure. We're looking for publications. We're looking for babies to arrive. We're future-oriented. But what I fear, what I know is true about me, is that we're not thinking far enough into the future. We don't think far enough ahead. I don't mean retirement here. I mean eternity. This little turn to the future that our passage takes at the end of chapter 9 invites us to look at one of two options that will be ours. Everybody sitting in this room has got one of two futures in front of them, according to this text. It invites us to ask ourselves which one is, uh, is ours. And then to ask ourselves, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to live now like Jesus is coming back? What would it look like in the words of our text to live as those who are eagerly anticipating his return? I want to camp this morning thinking about everything that's already been said in our letter about what Jesus has done in the past. Where I want to camp this morning is on the two questions that that case for Jesus and his past 
poses to all of us, questions we can't escape, and that we're not doing ourselves any favors if we don't confront head-on. Those two questions, what will be your future, and are you eagerly anticipating his return? If you found the passage, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read for us? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 9. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. You can be seated. I think the main point of these two verses is that everybody faces a future that's defined by one of two options. Death and judgment, or Jesus' death and coming redemption. What I want to do by digging into these two verses is is try to help you confront yourself with that question. Which one is for you? The bulk of the verses are contrast or comparison, really. Not a contrast, more of a comparison between what's the default future of everybody in the sin-broken world that we live in and then what Jesus has done to transform that future. It's a comparison between the the default future of everybody living in this sin-broken world and what Jesus has done to transform that future. Verse 27 gets at the default future. It states just matter-of-factly what anybody who's really carefully looked at the world will know. Even more, it states matter-of-factly what he didn't have to prove to, the, to those that he was writing to. To anyone who had a background in the Old Testament, who, who was knowledgeable of the Jewish way of thinking about the world, they would have just accepted this verbatim. The reality is, it is appointed for everyone to die once. And after this death comes judgment. Now, his primary point in these two verses is the second part of the comparison, what Jesus accomplishes. But, but I don't want us to skip straight to that part without first recognizing this, this front half, if you will, of the comparison. Because without this, without a, a taste of what our future is without Jesus, we won't be able to really connect with the second part of the comparison, with what Jesus does to transform it. To connect with the the first part of this comparison, with verse 27, is to connect with the reality of death and the judgment that comes after it. And it's against this reality, this dark, pitch-black canvas, that the beauty of the colors of Jesus' redemption for us shine through most brightly. The certainty of death, what we've been calling the fundamental human problem that nobody can deny. That's a subject we've touched on several times already. It comes up several times early on in the, in the letter to the Hebrews. It's something apart from which what Jesus does doesn't make any sense. And, and honestly, if, even if we'd never read Hebrews, if we're living with, as humans in this world with eyes wide open, we have to acknowledge that, that all of us have death waiting on us, that it hangs over us like a cloud. And, and if we really think about it, if we square up to that reality and face it honestly... If we think about it apart from Jesus, then that reality seems to call into question the value of anything that we can do. Often we judge the value of what we do by what it, where it ends up. Right? 
you judge your life by where you end up, by what you've accomplished a lot of times. That's kind of our default way of thinking about things. And if, if we end up in the same place that a common house roach ends up after he's been squashed, if that's really our destiny, then what does it really matter whether your bank account gets built up? What does it, what does it matter whether you get published or whether your kids turn down obedient and well-adjusted? The reality of death, when you face it squarely, is thoroughly depressing and it's terrifying. The last couple of weeks I've been reading this, uh, this classic um, novel from the mid-century called Catch-22. Anybody read it? Catch-22? It's a, um, it's, it's, a, it's a comedy, a sort of deeply satirical view of World War II. World War II is normally championed as this time of, of honor and sacrifice for country, right? Think, you know, Band of Brothers or something like that. Catch-22 is sort of the anti-take on World War II, a, a, a view from, from the lens of those who were forced to die in it and didn't want to. In the center of the story is this character who's, who is hilarious, a guy named Yossarian, who takes it as his life's mission to avoid having to do anything that he's going to be asked to do in the army, to, to stay out of all the missions that are assigned to him because he wants to stay alive. And and the, the book traces him, or, or begins to describe him as this just crazy guy. He's a nutcase. He's constantly doing things that no sane person would do in, an, in the normal world. He's crazy, all trying to get out of flying his missions. But the, the, the reality is, the one that they bring you to, is that he's, he's actually, if, if death is on the line and death is all there is, then that's what sanity looks like, to do everything you possibly can to avoid death. The catch-22 that's kind of at the heart of the book is that to be exempted from flying in these missions that he didn't want to fly, you had to be insane, kind of like getting out of a crime that you committed. If you, if you, were, if you were officially clinically insane, you wouldn't have to fly the missions. But the problem is that by the time you appealed to insanity, you showed that you were sane because you were trying not to fly the missions, and that's a very sane thing to do. If you're willing to fly on these missions, it might get you killed. Well, then clearly you're crazy, but your, your craziness keeps you from asking out of the missions. And as soon as you ask out of the missions, you prove that you're, you're sane, and so you're stuck in this catch-22. It's crazy. It's hilarious, and it's summed up in Yossarian's desire to— this is, this is the classic quote from the book— to live forever or die in the attempt. It's ludicrous, it's dishonorable, it's despicable, but if death is the end and it's all there is, then it makes sense. The reality is actually worse than this author of Catch-22 even realized. Because in his way of looking at the world, death is oblivion. Right? It's your ticket to nothingness. In the perspective of the Bible, and of our passage in particular, death actually isn't the end. It's a ticket to judgment. Even the, even the phrase in verse 22 that, that it is appointed for man to die once hints at this. That death is not natural, but it's, a, it's something that's structured and built on purpose. It's appointed it is itself a kind of judgment, and it's a pathway to even deeper and more long-lasting, more sweeping judgment. And don't miss this. From the perspective of the Bible, this judgment that verse 27 gets at is not an open question. 
don't think what we might often be tempted to think. What I think shows up in several major religious traditions and in some popular versions of Christianity, that you live your life now trying to to outbalance, outweigh, that is, bad things that you do with good things that you do, hoping that when you get to the end, you'd be in the you'd be in the red or in the black. You know, you want to be in the black. You want to you want to have done more good than you've done bad, and that that's the basis on which you you're judged. Hinduism is a famous example of this way of thinking about things. This this same perspective on judgment is present in Islam, and and we've we've heard it in Christian friends. I bet all of us have talked to someone who is maybe a nominal Christian, not 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 maybe a churchgoer, but reaching near the end of their lives, and have said something like, "I just hope that when my time comes, I'll have done enough." The Bible's perspective is very different on what judgment looks like. It's already decided, in effect. I've been I've been uh, reading some about the uh, the the Penn State scandal, which has come to a head this last week, with a report that shows that Joe Paterno, the bastion of all that is right and honorable in college football, knew way more than he was owning up to about the uh, sex abuse that was perpetrated by his defensive coordinator, longtime friend, and staff member. And in, in the reactions to what Paterno had done, this guy who was just he was like a saint in this world, always championed for his work among those who needed it, among, among underprivileged kids, his donations to the university, the fact that so many of his players graduated from college when other colleges were just shipping them off after a couple years to the NFL. He was, he was this bastion of all that was right with college football, and now this huge mistake that is so far beyond any sort of recruiting violation that he might have been busted for and, and run out of town for. And so the, the, the reactions have been, what do we do with this guy? His life is so mixed now. One of the trustees at Penn State said this, was quoted this uh, way in an AP article this week. He said, you have to measure every human by the good they've done and the bad they've done. Right? This, this common perspective we've been talking about as it, comes to, as it relates to Paterno. We have to take some time and distance before we start thinking about how we think about Joe Paterno's entire life and entire body of work. Is that the way you think about judgment? The way we're weighing now Paterno's life and legacy? There's a kind of truth about that here. I mean, especially when you evaluate other humans and when you're the standard that you're evaluating them against. But, but there's a lot of lie in that too. Because the judgment that, that verse 27 speaks of here in our passage that's a judgment that's not on a, on a sort of bell curve against the performance of all other human beings. It's a judgment that will, that, will, that will reflect the standard for which we were made. And that standard for which we were made is the image of the God who knows no sin, who is so perfectly separated from sin he can't even look at it, who exists in an inapproachable light and holiness, we're told. That's the standard that we're judged about. And against that standard, our judgment is set. And that's the default. That's the default. Apart from Jesus, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment, and the judgment is already set. That's one possible future. The letter to the Hebrews, though, has been consistently explaining a radically new future that's made possible by Jesus, and it's the subject of the other side of the comparison. So if Verse 27 sets up one side of it. It's appointed for men to die once, 
The next piece is, after this comes judgment. Verse 28 has the same structure. So Jesus died. But in that second piece to the parallel, something radically new. Look back at verse 29, 28. Excuse me. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's the first part of the comparison. He dies like we die. Will appear a second time, introducing that second piece of the comparison. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see the comparison? Just as all die, so Jesus died once. But his death was to bear the sins of many. That's been the point of the previous two chapters. He has died a once for all death that we were meant to die. And because his life was so perfect, was so without blemish as a sacrifice for us, what his death does is remove the need for the judgment that always must follow human death. His death was so undeserved, was so perfect and so valuable that it wipes out the second part of verse 27 and says that now no longer must judgment follow those of us who die. So what follows it in its place? In the blank, if you will, where judgment falls in verse 27, in verse 28, a radically different kind of appearing is noted. So if, if in verse 27 all of us die once and then appear, so to speak, for judgment, like someone who's guilty appearing before the the bench of a, a judge, if we must appear for judgment. So Jesus dies, taking the sins of many, and now appears, but not for judgment, we're told, not to deal with sins, verse 28 says. He appears to save those who are waiting for him. I think the picture is, it reminds me of, it reminds me of, of sometimes going to a store, a furniture store maybe. And maybe it's like a, a, an everything-must-go type close, store closing sale, and you're kind of looking around what you want, might want to buy, and there's these big pieces all over the store that have big sold signs on them where the people wanted to sort of stake their claim to that item, but they couldn't come back and get it yet. They had to go find some trailer or something to come and get it. And you guys have seen these, right? They have this sold tags and, and who it is and... It seems like that's exactly what Jesus has accomplished by his death. The past stuff that we've been talking about, what Jesus did once and for all, that has purchased us once and for all. We belong to him when we trust in him, but we're still here. He's still got to come and get us. We're sold, so to speak. Better yet, we're bought, so to speak. But we're waiting on our master, our, our redeemer, to come and pick us up. Those of us who trust him have this image waiting for us after death, not, not the image of judgment. This is ultimately the essence of the Christian hope, that Jesus offers us an alternative future, not just an escape from this life, but the redemption of all things. I know when we talk about the second coming, a lot of times, if you're into that kind of thing, you tend to run crazy with the details. All of us want to put ourselves into a, a camp on, on where we think Jesus is coming back and when and under what circumstances and what, what is the teaching of the Bible on this. There's a lot of fun to be had there. There's also a, a great baseline, though, that all Christians for all time who can, who can genuinely own the name of Jesus have held to. From the earliest Christian confessions in the Bible to the earliest confessions of the church, Christians have believed firmly that Jesus is coming back. 
whatever the time, whatever the place and circumstances, he's coming, and he's coming for us. Now, our text only states this briefly, that he's coming back for his own to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He doesn't say much about about what that will look like, or he doesn't help us try to tease out the the, the differences between you know what it would look like to, for Jesus to come for judgment versus to come for salvation. What I want to do is take a little bit of liberty and give you the way that one of my favorite preachers teased out the implications of this text. 300 years ago, nearly Jonathan Edwards was preaching on this very text, and he, he made the observation that Jesus' first coming, the one that led to his death, all the circumstances of that coming, they kind of fit for one who is coming to die, to, to bear sin, to, in verse 28, to, to be offered for the, to bear the sins of many. He came like one hunkered down under a huge burden. He came in humility, but when he comes again, when he comes to save those who are waiting for him, he won't come that way. I'm not quoting here directly, but these are the comparisons that Edwards makes. In his first coming, he was, he was a poor and helpless infant. In his second coming, he comes as the great God of the universe. In his first coming, he was born of a virgin and laid in a stable manger. In his second coming, he comes in the clouds of heaven with such a brightness and glory that the brightness of the sun shall be darkness. When he came first, he came alone, surrounded by cattle. When he comes again, he comes with the hosts of heaven, surrounded by holy angels. He came first as a carpenter building things with wood. He comes again as the creator of everything that is. He came first as the servant of all. When he comes again, it will be as the absolute sovereign of the universe. He came first as poor with nowhere to lay his head. When he comes again, it will be as the possessor of the heavens and the earths. He came first as one given to hard labor to suffering. When he comes again, it will be as one in full possession of his reward, the end of his labors. When he came first, he was the object of contempt. When he comes again, he'll be the object of honor and admiration and bowed to by every knee on he- in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. When he came at first, he came with a sorrow that took him to the grave. When he comes again, he will come with the great joy that was set before him. When he came first, he was deserted by everybody, even his own disciples. And when he comes again, he will come to gather all of his people to himself. And that is where the beauty of his appearing intersects with our conception of the alternate future This one who's coming, he's coming for you if you trust in him. Of course, his first coming is what made this second coming possible. Apart from him coming as one who bears the sins of many, we don't get to look forward to a time when he comes to get us unquestioned sovereign of the universe. But, But because his life was given, because of what happened in the past actually happened once and for all, we look forward to his second coming. So here's the question. Which future will be yours? Which future will be yours? 
don't assume, friends, please don't assume that because you're young, you've got plenty of time. Please don't assume that because you're better than other people, maybe than those that you hang out with, that because you've done good more often than you've done bad, you're in the clear. It doesn't work that way. Your future is going to go one way or the other. This is it. This sums it up. You're either going to get what you deserve or you're going to get what Jesus deserves. You're going to get what you deserve, death and judgment, or you're going to get what Jesus deserves, he who lived a perfect life and gave it for those who deserve to die, who's coming back to claim his own. So friends, please choose Jesus. The second question I want us to address ourselves to this morning is this. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Are you eagerly waiting for him? Now I know that question is really closely connected to the first question. It's, it's sort of another way of asking whether you're choosing Jesus. The same Edwards sermon I referred to a minute ago, he, he, in one of his application points, he's trying to help his hearers see what it would look like in their lives to sort of stake themselves to Jesus and his coming, to, to live like they were eagerly waiting for him. And he said the, the way that he put it was that if you ever wish to ascend to him, your heart has got to ascend to him first. If you want to be attached to him then, when he comes, you've got to go ahead and attach your heart to him now. That means, that means putting all your chips on him. It means staking your treasure with him. It means tearing yourself away from anything else that might pull at your heart for affection. That's what it means. What I want to do today is try to help us all get a taste of whether or not we are making that kind of investment. Whether or not we're living as if Jesus is coming back. Whether we're living for the coming of Jesus. Here's another way to set up this question. In a sense, what we've been talking about here is, what we've been talking about for the last few weeks is that we've been saved from the effects of our sin or the penalty of our sin by Jesus' death. But in another sense, in the sense that this, these last two verses are getting at, we're going to be saved when he comes back. So we sort of are saved by something that happened in the past, but we're we're still going to be saved. It's this weird, ten- weird tension that, that a lot of the New Testament explores. The difference, I think, that, that this author is getting at is the difference between status and experience. So, Jesus' death, once for all, was perfectly suited to making us holy in the eyes of God, once and for all. And if we have faith in him, if we, if we choose Jesus then that's how God sees us, even now. We own that status. We are his child. But in our experience, something Bill got at last week in his sermon, we often don't see it because the sin we trust has been totally handled by Jesus, whose penalty has been wiped clean, still is in us. It still affects how we live. It still shapes the brokenness of the environment we live in. Our status is set in stone, but we still experience the many-sided effects of sin. The promise here is that Jesus is coming to give us what he's already bought for us, to make us who we already are. Another analogy, I mean, I mentioned the furniture store one earlier. This is probably a better one. Another analogy is, is like a trust fund. 
I never had wealthy grandparents, so and I don't have one of these. But trust funds are set up by someone with money for young children in their family who don't have any money, but they want to pass on what they've earned to help their, their, their children live a, or grandchildren live a better life, right? So they put it into a trust. You can't access it until you get to a certain age. Maybe you can live off of the temporary benefits from it. Maybe you cut a, a check is cut to you out of it to help you pay for college or whatever until you reach that certain age. But what you own, what you sort of already possess, isn't yet yours in your experience. You can't just go blow it on a weekend, right? That's the way a trust fund works. Similarly, Jesus has already made us someone different in the eyes of God. We own a certain status because of a death that he died once for all. It was so perfect it wipes us clean. But in our experience, we don't yet have it all. I think it's that tension that helps us eagerly wait for Jesus. This picture of Jesus coming to save those who were eagerly waiting for him is the picture of Jesus coming to give them what's already been bought for them. And that means not just guilt-free status before God the Father. It means a life free from pain and sorrow, free from the ongoing battle against sin, free from the sense of loss or dissatisfaction that affects all of us. It means that we get the full benefits of what Jesus accomplished. And in the last few minutes I've got this morning, what I want to do is try to help you, give you some examples of things that all of us experience that if used well, help us eagerly wait for Jesus. If we think about these things that are part of all of our experience in the right way, through the lenses of one who is waiting for Jesus to come back, they help us wait more eagerly. They'll help us be ready when he comes. Ultimately, that is the main purpose of Hebrews. It was written to a group of friends who were on the edge They were trying to decide whether or not to stay true to Jesus when there were lots of factors in their lives that made switching away from him a really good idea, way more comfortable, maybe even save their life. He's writing to them to try to get them to eagerly wait for Jesus' coming. And that message cuts through the centuries, through the millennia to us, and stands before us this morning calling us to wait eagerly for Jesus. So, so how can we do that? What can we latch onto in our experience that'll drive us to wait more eagerly for Jesus? If you're not waiting for him right now, if you don't sense that, I think it's because you aren't thinking carefully enough about what's in your experience. What we want to do is look at the things that are so clearly still marred by sin in our lives to sort of repaint a black backdrop against, with the, against which the coming of Jesus will shine through even more beautifully. Here are a couple examples. First, the the ongoing sin that all of us, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, still struggle with. One backdrop to the illusion in verse 28 of Jesus making an appearance after he's dealt with sin. A backdrop that you probably just wouldn't get out of reading this passage on the surface of it is a Day of Atonement ritual from the Old Testament that, that our author to Hebrews has been bringing up again and again through this letter. Part of that ritual was a high priest going into this holy place behind a curtain where no one else could go with him, offering a sacrifice. And as he was in there, the people were gathering outside, waiting. What they were waiting for was him to appear. Because when he appeared again, when he 
exited those curtains and came into their view. What that meant was that what he had done inside had worked. That at least for that year, sin was taken care of and they could live in freedom. I think the author, talking as much as he has about the Day of Atonement, is thinking of that same image here. When he talks about Jesus giving himself up to bear the sins of many and now appearing a second time. What that means for those of us who wait for him, as if he's behind the curtain in the heavenly places offering his sacrifice for us now. What what this means for those of us who are waiting for him to appear again a second time is that when we see him, the, the sin that all of us still struggle with that weighs us down and won't let us go will be gone once and for all. When he appears again, what it means is that his death has not just made us clean in the eyes of God, it will have actually made us clean. In our own experience, in ourselves, we will be free from the sin that will not let us go. That's what his appearing means. Don't you long for this? Haven't you noticed that that no matter how far you get in your spiritual walk, that sin is still a a, a real problem for you? And that in fact, here's the the, the maybe unfortunate thing about it, that the more, it's kind of a catch-22 actually, the more that you grow in holiness, the more you start to look at your sin like God does, so the more you start to hate it. The more you grow in holiness, the more the, the blinding effects of sin are, are pulled away from your eyes and you see it in ways that you haven't seen it before. And so you feel worse than you ever did before. So to get more and more Christ-like is to feel more and more burdened by sin. And that is going away when Jesus appears again. It's gone once and for all. Don't you want that? If you're feeling beat down by your sin this morning, you're in good company. I don't want to try to tell you not to be weighed down by it. It's awful. It cost Jesus his life. You should hate it. But friends, let it drive you to an eager anticipation of Jesus. To wait for the one who's coming means sin is no longer your problem. Here's another example. Are you burdened for the suffering of other people, for the injustice that's in the world. I think that's part of our cultural moment right now, especially in centers of education like ours. People seem to be more aware of global suffering and injustice than they have been before. There are campaigns afoot to help do something about it, you know, and we buy our Tom shoes and we get our T-shirts and we go to drives and this, that, and the other. And and, and all that is is good, but if you've ever spent enough time in the world of human suffering and injustice in places like India where we're headed tomorrow, if you've even seen a movie like Slumdog Millionaire and gotten a taste of what it looks like, if you've really gotten your hands dirty beyond the level of wearing a t-shirt, if you've gotten your hands dirty like like Alan does every day at at the ministry that he runs in East Nashville, then I don't see how you can live that life without despair because what you see is that these problems are too big to fix. You just aren't going to get rid of suffering and injustice. It's not going anywhere, not, no, no matter what we do in this life. How in the world do you do anything about it at all knowing that your efforts aren't going to get the job done? Well, a lot of people don't. A lot of, a lot of young people get really interested in justice issues and alleviating poverty worldwide, and then they realize when they get far enough into it how big the problem is and they give up. Because ultimately, your generation is not going to see the end of poverty. But if Jesus is coming back, if Jesus is coming back to set all things right, 
if his coming back is not this time to deal with sin, but to wipe the world clean of all of its effects, including poverty, if he's coming back, then even though what you do in this life cannot erase those problems, it's worth it. It's not in vain. Because one of these days, Jesus is coming to take care of things. And when he comes, the things that that your efforts have been bearing witness to will be made a reality. So you fight, even if it's a losing battle at this time. You fight because you trust you are bearing witness to something that's coming. You are helping others wait for him. If you're burdened by injustice this morning, by suffering, by poverty, then let it drive you to an eager waiting for Jesus. Finally dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction should drive us to wait more eagerly for Jesus. I don't think there's ever been a generation in human history, in human history, any place on the the globe, that has ever been more financially secure or enjoyed a more comfortable way of life than ours does. And I don't know that there's ever been a generation that has been more clinically depressed than our generation. One of the best popular culture explorations of this is a, a hit show running now called Mad Men. It's, the show, it's a show about the, the time when this new way of life really began to take on steam. It was right after the war, World War II. All of a sudden, the economy is booming in levels that it never had before. People are able to buy homes now for the first time. Home ownership becomes possible. Jobs are stable. There's, there's plenty of money to be had. People are now having everything that they thought would have made them happy, and they're miserable. Our therapy provider business in the West is booming at an unprecedented level, addressing problems that even our great-grandparents couldn't have even imagined. Because when you're trying to put food on the table, when you're worried about whether the crops are going to come in, you don't have time to worry about identity angst or where happiness comes from. The things that we enjoy in this life are good gifts from God, but if we make them into God's, we find, in the words of the prophet, that they're just cisterns that can't hold water. Now, I've been talking about material dissatisfaction. I want to add one more layer to it. Even those of you out there who, are, who, really, who, who, who really apply your life to attacking the notion that any sort of material goods might make you happy. You know that's not true. You know it's a lie and you're fighting it. Aren't you, aren't you aware that even good things like relationships make you realize that the world isn't what it should be? Leave you with a sense of loss or lack? Well, here's what I mean. In the best case scenarios, our relationships end. I've been preparing for this. I was thinking about Carrie and his dad, who's facing Alzheimer's. And, and it's the, the beauty of the relationship that they had growing up that makes it so hard to watch this happen to his father. I thought of you, Bill, losing your dad a couple years ago. It was the beauty of, of, of the, what that relationship was that makes the, the pain of the loss so great. I thought of you, Jennifer, and your dad a few years back. I thought of the Vaughns and how many deaths they encountered just in a year. What do we do with that? We know these relationships are good for us. They're gifts of God, but then they end and they leave us with this void, this sense of loss. It's not just death. Here in our own church, just for the last two months, it feels like we've been saying goodbye to somebody every week, and it's, it's, it's like a gut punch. It's like a, a knife, 
every time it happens. And it's the beauty of what those relationships were that makes it so hard to see them end. And it leaves us with this sense of dissatisfaction that the world just isn't what it should be. We shouldn't have to feel like this. I know all of you have felt it. I don't know how or in what ways. This passage helps us know how to think about this sense of dissatisfaction, even with the good gifts that God gives us. A book that I have really come to appreciate by, uh, by Lane and Tripp, a, a book on Christian counseling, actually, describes this impulse that I'm talking about now, this dissatisfaction with just what we experience, even the good gifts from God, as actually a good thing. In fact, here's what they say. They say, God calls you to dissatisfaction. God calls you to dissatisfaction. The Christian life is a state of thankful discontent or joyful dissatisfaction. Did you get that? They describe the Christian life as a state of thankful discontent or joyful dissatisfaction. Part of that is because they don't want you to ever get lax in your battle with sin. You want to always be driving for more and more holiness. But I think a big part of it is that we just recognize the things that give us joy in this world just don't last. And that when we experience the ends or the boundaries of those things that we love, those things that were gifts to us from God, the Christian response to that is to eagerly wait for the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back, the joy that we found in those, in those things, whether material or relational, it will be just a flicker of light compared to the sun that will shine in our hearts. And the world that he is coming to make new will know no loss, no lack, no dissatisfaction. Are you eagerly waiting for that world? If you're not, you're not thinking carefully enough. Father, help us. We know so deeply that this world is not what it was meant to be. Claiming the promise that Jesus has died once for all. We pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and find us ready, we pray. Amen.